0: Good morning. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter four, verses 12 to 25. And if you're using the Bibles provided for you in the seat back in front of you, uh, it's found on verse 80:9. Matthew chapter four verses 12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, Those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come to you and we come to your word expecting not because we deserve it, but because we know you're good, expecting to be fed, to be transformed through the preaching and, and, and understanding of your word. And we pray for that understanding. God, we pray that you would work in us, work in our minds, Lord, uh, to hear what you are telling us today. We would understand your word accurately. But Lord, that we would be transformed by it. We love you we come to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, it's almost the new year and I hope you had a great Christmas and enjoyed that weird week now in between Christmas and New Year's where if you're a student or if you took off work, you know, you can't really remember what day it is and you sort of get lost in this fog of snacking and maybe napping and just hanging around the house. So, if that's you, I want to say I'm glad that you made that you knew today was Sunday and that you're here today. Because all joking aside, it is always good when we gather and the Lord does have a word for us today. So before we jump into the text that we just read, I want to start by reading off this these series of quotes for you by different people. So first one to start is this. Power is my mistress. I have worked too hard at her at her conquest to allow anyone to take her away from me. Well, there's this, the very first essential for success is a perpetually constant and regular employment of violence or the only real power comes out of a long rifle. Here's a short and sweet one. You cannot run faster than a bullet. Never heard that one before. Uh, Sometimes democracy must be bathed in blood, and lastly, let us have a dagger between our teeth, a bomb in our hands, and an infinite amount of scorn in our hearts. Lovely sentiment to kick off the new year, right? In case you weren't familiar, um, these are quotes from famous leaders, emperors, and dictators in more recent history. People like Napoleon and Hitler and Stal- uh, Stalin and Pinochet and Mussolini. And you might hear the list of those names, and if you've got somewhat of a passing familiarity with, his- with modern history, I'm sure you recognize two or three of those, and you think, okay, that checks out. Those quotes are pretty on brand in, in what, w- what we come to expect from dictators and people who, cu- who accumulate power over others and territory. In the last couple hundred years, more blood has been spilled and violence committed in the name of conquering land and people than all of history before it combined. So, we as modern people have a very negative perception when we think of leaders who have centralized power and seek to gain more and more territory. And of course, that negative perception is not invalid. So, what do we do then? As modern people with modern sensibilities, what do we do with a passage where a king is announcing the arrival of his kingdom, which, of course, is to expand? And I understand that this is Jesus, right? And in the church, we're used to using this kingly and royal language with Jesus. In fact, we would rightly even say that this is really good news. We'll talk about that. And it's in this passage that we start to understand, though, why this is good news, but I want to forget about being modern here, okay? Because the announcement of a coming kingdom has typically never been good news to the people who were being told about it. Historically, if an outside force is coming to you and where you live, you are, you are anything but happy about that fact. So why is it different here? And the answer to that question gets to the gut's of what this passage is telling us about this king and this kingdom. This passage is one that we often breeze through in our reading of Matthew because it comes between these big stories of Christ's temptation and, of course, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. We might spend a little bit of time here looking at the calling of the first disciples, but the rest probably just seems, "Ah, that's a summary of and just facts of concerning his early ministry, and that's true. But it's more than that. This half of chapter 4 tells us this. Our Lord's kingdom overthrows every expectation we have concerning reign and power. And this is a theme that is not not only true of this passage, but will continually carry itself through this gospel as we're repeatedly made aware of what his kingdom is like. While this idea has been present in places uh, in Matthew up to this point, it really breaks open here as Jesus' ministry begins. The kingdom of heaven is unlike anything that we've ever seen and unexpected in regards to what we've become used to in these things. In this passage, we see an unexpected starting point for it, Unexpected servants of this kingdom, and, unexpected, and an unexpected administration. So now let's jump into the actual text. And in this first part, I named it an unlikely starting point. And yes, I do understand I will address why I've got yet likely in parentheses. It will make sense in just a bit. But the story picks up where we left off on Christmas Eve. Jesus is still in the, in the Judean wilderness in the south. But because John the Baptist has been arrested, the heat is presumably up turned up on anyone with associations with him. So Jesus goes back up to his hometown of Nazareth. But Matthew doesn't explain much. He, does, he just doesn't stay there. He leaves his hometown and he goes, chooses, and goes to Capernaum, a town placed on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is going to begin his ministry in this region around the Sea of Galilee, and he's setting up base in this town called Capernaum. Why here? Why this location? Matthew does give us an answer by quoting the prophet Isaiah. So in 15 and 16, again, it says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned dawned so what he's quoting here are parts from isaiah 9 uh, verses 1 to 3 and this is all part of the section that eventually leads up to the verses that we've become very familiar with at christmas time from isaiah 9:6 for unto us a child is born to us a son is given but it talks about this great light coming to people who are dwelling in darkness. In Matthew's own words, and of course, quoting this Isaiah passage, Matthew refers to the land of Zebulun and, Na- and Naphtali. Now, I don't want us to get overwhelmed with names here. Okay? Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they first settled in the land right? And the land that these two tribes of Israel settled in was in the northernmost part of the land of Canaan, covering the region of the Sea of Galilee. And I want to tell you a little bit about the history of this region. See, back when the people of Israel were freed from Egypt and they conquered the land of Canaan to live and to settle in, some of these northern tribes, which of course Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those that that were around Galilee. They didn't complete the job and remove the other nations from from their cities. So these regions were prone to attacks from surrounding nations, and they're often subjugated by other people because they're in this location. But it was also common for them to intermingle with these cultures, and they were quick in joining in worshiping of their false gods. They were always on the edge of everything. You had southern cities, right, like Jerusalem. They would have their moments of glory, their moments in the sun, but nothing good ever happened that far north in Galilee. During King Solomon's reign, he gave away 20 cities of Galilee to the king of Tyre, a foreign nation. And when God then later utilized some of the great empires of history to come and conquer his people as a judgment for their sin, who got it first? Those in the north, the people of Galilee. And so for the past 600 years from the time of Jesus, every world empire that came through to conquer Israel came from the north and marched through Galilee first. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. Galilee was the front doorstep that was trampled over and over and over again by these earthly kingdoms and empires. With this then, they became so intermingled with the nations that had conquered them in the past that their identity with the people of God, with Israel, had become very obscured. They hardly even seemed a part of it. And so it's no wonder why Isaiah and then now Matthew use this language to talk about this territory that Jesus started his proclamation about his kingdom in. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I told you earlier that I'd explain why I put yet expected in parentheses on this first point because of course when a new kingdom came to conquer God's people, this northernmost region of Galilee always was the first to feel it in a very real way. But the kingdom of heaven isn't like any other kingdom. They were the first to be hit with it, so that's the expected part. But Christ's kingdom is not like the Assyrians who came hundreds of years before then as an instrument of God's judgment. For those who become part of this kingdom, it means salvation. And down and out Galilee gets to be first to partake in this almost unimaginable blessing. Now, I don't want us to miss this word here for us. Because I get that this is a lot of history, and there's a lot of timelines and empires and such, and granted, I'm partial to these things. I enjoy them, and they're important in the context of understanding Matthew here. But let's not fail to see what we're learning about the nature of Jesus' kingdom here because that should hit us squarely where we are today. Jesus, beginning in Galilee, tells us that this is a kingdom for the down and out. This is a kingdom for those who have been beaten up in life, whether that be caused by our own decision-making or by external forces that we can't control. And of course, it's almost always with all of us, a mixture of both. This is a kingdom for those of you who think My life is way too much of a mess, and I'm way too far from God for Jesus to ever accept me. No, to the contrary, you are a prime candidate. The powers of this world will chew you up and spit you out, but this kingdom is different. It does what we don't expect. You can go to him freely without those kind of fears. It goes on from here. And it's almost as if then Matthew takes a little bit of a break to present to us the calling of the first disciples. And I'm guessing that this is probably the section of text that more of us would have a familiarity with. We have the king and the announcement of his kingdom, and now he's gathering servants. And as we would now assume the people and the task that they are called to is not what we would expect. Now, given that the region of Galilee is a bunch of towns and villages that surround a large sea, there's a big fishing industry. And Jesus sees two fishermen brothers just out working and calls to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is how he calls Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Then he sees another set of brothers fishing, James and John. He calls them as well. And Matthew makes a point to tell us that all of them drop what they're doing to heed the call and follow him. No doubt to cast light on the nature of the one who is doing the calling. Okay, Christ is king. He's sovereign. And when the king calls you to do something, you do it. And certainly they recognize even in the moment that Jesus is someone who is worthy of such immediate obedience that they would see their livelihood and even their family ties as less worthy than him to go after him in such a manner. Their response says something about who Jesus is. But I want want to go back to what he's called them to because we can't miss that. To follow him and he will make them fishers of men. Now, I understand it would be easy for us to look at this maybe a little too narrowly and just conclude that Jesus sees some fishermen here, quickly sort of turns a phrase in order to use their job creatively or to creatively illustrate the mission that he's giving them. And, of course, that is true, at least partially. He does take what they're doing and he puts a twist on it about in, in how they will be gathering people like fish to his kingdom. But there is something for us to see here that I hadn't seen before, okay? And I'm not sure whether the disciples understood all this in the moment, uh, but this is not the first place in the Bible where this language is used of fishing for men or people. I want to take you to a couple hundred years before these events, to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 16. So in in this passage of the Old Testament, God is addressing his people through the prophet, about their sin and their unfaithfulness to him. And this is what Jeremiah says. Verse 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So here God is talking about sending fishers or fishermen, servants. He goes on to talk about hunters as well, to catch his people in order to repay them for their sin. And what we come to understand that eventually means is that he uses kings and kingdoms of the earth to drag his people off into judgment and exile because of what they've done. Now, knowing that, we can see a little bit more fully what Jesus is telling his first disciples to do. His chosen servants here are not kings, and they're not empires, not armies, just very ordinary, working-class people as instruments for his kingdom to do what? Like fish, to catch and drag people now out of spiritual exile of their sin and out of judgment and into his glorious kingdom. Unexpected servants with an unexpected task. And this initial call then to the first disciples finds its greatest clarity... At the end of Matthew, when our Lord then gives his great commission, the call to be fishers of men and bring them to the Lord still stands as the central calling to all of those who follow Jesus. We too are held to this as well if we call Jesus Lord. To every man, to every woman, to every child. No matter our age or our level of education or our social status or any other category that we can dream up of, none of it serves as a legitimate reason for not making disciples and bringing people to our Lord. God has chosen ordinary people from all stripes for this very extraordinary task. And this is what makes Jesus' calling of Peter and Andrew and John and James so notable knowing who he calls to serve and the nature of the service that he calls us to, we ought to be challenged this morning. I hope our hearts are moved by the work that he's entrusted to his own, that we give ourselves fully over to going to those who are in darkness and bringing them to the light of his kingdom. The Lord has saved you. That's what your life is about now. All other elements that make up your life, your job, your family, your friends, your education, your hobbies, your money, all of it now serves the ultimate end of catching people and bringing them along to see them worship the one true worthy king. I want you to understand though that I'm not, and nor is the passage calling you to just quit or leave behind the things about your life that were listed before. But what is the ultimate thing that you live your life for? That's the question that no believer can escape when reading this. Are we all about being fishers of men? Or as our vision statement at Grace Church would put it, to know Christ, to make Christ known. And I'm not saying that we don't do it at all. Certainly I know that's not true. When you talk to your neighbor about Jesus or you invite them to church you're being a fisher of men when you open up your bible with your kids and talk with talk with them about the word you're being a fisher of men or when you invite your friend to blaze or maybe your friend to ignite so that they might hear the truth of who Jesus is you're being a fisher of men or when you encourage and teach and equip other christians to make disciples You also are being a fisher of men. And I'm encouraged all the time by what the Lord is doing in this church. All we're saying is we just need to be growing in it all the more. I need to continue to grow in these things. And I just want to say this final thing on this second point. This isn't a guilt trip, okay? It's certainly not meant to be one if it comes off that way. Because the gracious King of Kings has called us to this. In other words, what a privilege it is that we get to do this. If we could only see consistently with spiritual eyes the work that is before us, the weightiness of it, and little old me and little old you get to do it, what a joy that is. I'm going to get to the last three verses then. And we see things switch gears again. And it goes back then to giving a big picture of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. What we see is an unexpected administration. Now, I do question whether I should have used the word administration. I suppose I could have used the word rule here. But when we talk about an administration, we're simply talking about the nature of things under a person's leadership. So we might want to think maybe about United States presidents from the past. So we talk about George Washington's administration. His administration is about establishing the government of this new country, right? And uh, what about the, you know, the Lincoln administration? It's defined by walking through the difficulty of the Civil War and freeing the slaves. So that sort of thing. When we look at verses 23 to 25, what does it tell us about the nature of of Jesus' rule. First of all, what, we've been, what, we, what would we have expected of a new conquering king? Okay? As was pointed out earlier, this region was very used to empires coming through and conquering them. And, of course, it was never good news to know that another army was coming to take you over. You know that you're going to be under their thumb in some kind of way. Okay? Maybe it was just high or oppressive taxes. Maybe you lose your personal property and you see it seized by this new kingdom. Or if the ruler was really brutal, and some of them were, it might mean enslavement of you and your family. So you just kind of hope for the best and wait. But Matthew gives us a glimpse here of the nature of Jesus' kingdom on earth. And it's pretty much the opposite of anything you'd expect from earthly kingdoms that have come and gone in the past. This is not a kingdom that is defined by what it takes from you. It is a kingdom that blesses those who are in it. The coming of this kingdom is not something to be dreaded. This kingdom is good news for those for whom it comes. And that's, of course, the word that Jesus proclaims in Galilee. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And then what? We have healing of every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, as Baptist, okay, some of us might read this, and it may make us a little uncomfortable, okay? And the reason that it might make us a little uncomfortable is because, yes, in the Christian world, there is some unhealthy theology and fixation upon miracles and healing out there, and that's, that's true. But sometimes, we can respond with another unhealthy attitude about it. Where we ignore the topic altogether. And if we do that, we're going to miss something about the nature of our Lord's kingdom that is being demonstrated here. Because Jesus has come and is coming to do something that not even the best historical world leaders and kings or rulers could ever have hoped to fulfill under their reign. Jesus has not just come to establish a fair and healthy and just society, He has, He will, But it's so much bigger than that. Jesus has come to rule and reign, and in his reign, reverse all of the effects of the fall. Everything that has come into this world as a result of sin, sickness, pain, disease, and of course, even death. The miracles and healings of Jesus are not to be disregarded, But they are a sneak peek of what is to come for us when he returns and his reign on earth is fully realized. Remember what we went over a couple of months ago when we finished the book of Revelation. I know this passage has been quoted quite a bit over the years here in this pulpit, but it's absolutely pertinent to our understanding of what Jesus is showing us and what to expect. So Revelation 21, 3 to 4. No one. And we can never hear this enough as his people. Right? Because even though his promises are sure, and we have all the reason in the world to hope until he comes back to us, there will still be grief, and there will still be pain for us to endure. And I know that some of you feel that more intensely now than others. And looking at this passage... And what it tells us about our king, all I can say is, hang on, Christian. Now may be the time for grief, but he promises it won't be forever. Jesus has come to make all things new. Hang on to that, even if you can't hang on to anything else. So we see the response then of the people. This place which dwelt in darkness, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, it says in other translations, because people from many different places lived in this region, they flocked to him. And it's not just the people from Galilee, but people from all over bring in their sick and infirmed to see him tells us that great crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan, in other words, people from the north of there and the east and from the south are flocking to him from different regions and different backgrounds and different cultures. They hear of him and they're going to him. And again, it's the opposite of what happens when a new kingdom approaches. See, the nations that it comes to conquer, they either put up a resistance or they and they probably died, they probably did their own peril, or they lay down and they just hope for the best. But here, the nations are coming to Jesus directly, willingly. It's so different from every other kingdom. And again, this just squares us up for the call that he puts on us in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations. He is showing us here that this kingdom is bigger than a regional thing. It is global. And the gospel will go to every people group. His kingdom is a kingdom of all nations. And that's why we have that big map out there in the commons. Because the gospel of the kingdom keeps going out to new places until he returns. The work isn't done yet. We want all people to know the goodness of our king. Our Lord's kingdom overthrows every expectation we have concerning reign and power. Starts with the humble, and the down and out. He calls ordinary people as his his servants to this extraordinary task of bringing others to him. And his rule does and will do things that no other king would dream of even promising, much less fulfilling. It is backwards from everything that we would ever expect from any political power. And he has made us his. And for those of you who are listening, who maybe just stand outside and are wondering for yourself, what do I do with Jesus? He offers himself to you as well. Drop your nets and follow him. Next week, we're going to have a short one-week break from Matthew as Pastor Matthew will be up here sharing from Psalm 1. But after that, uh, we're going to be jumping right back in as we hear what the Lord says to these very crowds who have come to him about living in his kingdom from the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to encourage you actually to take time and to read Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. But in the meantime, but in the meantime, let us think on these things and pray. Bow with me. Lord, we come to you Asking that you do in us, Lord, what our flesh rebels against. Come to you freely. To know your salvation, to serve you, and to see the glory of your kingdom. God, I pray for uh, us as a church that as we press forward in this year, that we would grow in these things. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, for the grace shown to us. May this word transform us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to give you guys some time to uh, take some time in silent reflection on this word.